We all presumably know what stolen valor means. It's a common enough occurrence for some Firestone security guard with 15 credits toward a criminal justice major from Pomona City College to ask for a military discount at the Fuddruckers in Ontario, only to have an army vet that did two years active duty as a fueler during the Panama invasion call him out for wearing an Air Force Command Chief Master Sergeant Chevron sewn upside down on a marching band jacket with nine rows of service ribbons, including ones for the Berlin Airlift and the Victoria Cross. These sad cosplayers enrage people by heisting some of that precious valor. God damn it, man. How dare you disgrace the sacred ground of 50% off of Fuddruckers curly fries. Did my son-in-law spend three years in the typing pool in Camp Pendleton before being given an other-than-honorable discharge for smelling like weed in formation just so you can board first on a Southwest flight to Farmington, New Mexico under the false pretense of having a tactical flag patch on your T.H.E. pack? That honor must be earned, sir. You never used to hear about stolen valor because well, it's not how people used to be. I don't mean that there weren't fakers. There were always guys parading around their neighborhood taverns claiming to have been with Napoleon in Moscow or to have landed in Normandy with general discharge or whatever, but everyone knew they were harmless cranks. No, the difference is that people weren't quite so liberal with the use of the word valor back in the day, so it wasn't quite so easy to steal. Valor was a word weighted with meaning. It still is, in fact, but like so many words in our modern world, it's changed a bunch just recently, and now, rather than meaning great courage in battle, it means having enlisted once in the military, or police, or fire department, or coast guard, border patrol, homeland security, or any other uniformed service, and having presumably fulfilled that enlistment for the most part, enough to be able to convincingly stare into a drink when someone asks you if you were ever in the shit, and at least get the name of your unit correct so that you don't get punched by a guy pretending to be a Navy SEAL. See, there has been an incredible valor inflation in the last 20 years, and it's, it's part of the hangover that started over 40 years ago when we abolished the draft, and gradually the expectation that youth might be called upon to perform some national service fell out of fashion among the privileged classes, and the military became mostly a jobs program for the poor. Middle-class kids lost any sense that they should contribute materially to their nation until 9-11 happened, and a whole new generation suddenly felt moved to defend their nation from attack. Well, that spell wore off pretty quickly for most kids who, for better or for worse, realized their nation wasn't really under attack, but rather had been attacked once by some Middle Eastern religious nuts cranky about some bullshit who got away with it mostly as a result of some lax motherfucking work on the part of our intelligence services that frankly still hasn't been atoned for and fat chance will it ever be now. The point is that the ones who poured into the service after that hangover wore off either enlisted on 9-12 and the hangover didn't wear off until they were in their jump boots checking their webbing or the hangover never wore off because they were locked and loaded by their pastors and loving but shrill and kind of lying to themselves about being happy mothers and by the Pledge of Allegiance they recited before every future Farmers of America meeting a long time before 9-11 ever happened. Honestly, we don't talk about this enough. There used to be so many jobs, good jobs, that rednecks could do with pride, like herp derping around the fields and hunting hogs and all that other shit rednecks do, like 
who knows. And all those jobs have mostly been taken by robots and white-coated Monsanto eggheads, and we've got a whole nation of people that think God wants the world to go back to being a music video from John Mellencamp's Little Pink Houses, and there's not a damn other thing they can do to scratch that itch to be regular and bend the shit out of their hat brims besides get in fights and join the army. Even the ones with college degrees went to Aggie schools and their degrees are in breech birthing calves and increasing corn yields, but that work is being done by robots too, so they also have to choose between joining the ROTC and becoming a captain with no chance of ever getting promoted to major, or of managing the local Fuddruckers where their employees were all specialists first class and none of them could ever make the payments on their Mustangs. So all this Valor talk has nothing to do with Valor. It's exactly virtue signaling, just like the snowflake libs do when they angry beg people on Twitter to support the Green New Deal instead of hosting gender reveal parties. Except in this case, it's valorizing what was formerly, and would be in any functioning society, just the stuff of basic citizenship. Getting a job where you wear a uniform and are very, very occasionally in harm's way as a component of trying to help your fellow citizens. There are plenty of people in uniform who serve their country, like the Postal Service and the Park Service and the Public Health Service, and plenty of others with essential functions like the Civil Service and the Foreign Service and the Customs Service, and thousands of jobs that serve the nation otherwise. The idea that being a cop or a soldier is some kind of sacred work because the risk of death is present is both jingoistic and condescending. Cops had an on-the-job death rate last year about half that of truckers and about a third that of garbage men. It can be argued which of these three occupations provides the greatest good to a functioning civil society, although my money is on the garbage men. Active duty soldiers have a higher risk of death, twice that of garbage men, slightly more than commercial fishermen, but way, way under the rate for loggers. All of these jobs are necessary, crucial even to promote and protect this free society we're in the process of denigrating and destroying by abandoning every first principle in favor of graft, xenophobia, and revenge. And I would challenge the assertion that a soldier who dies in service of our country's wars of adventure in the Korangal Valley dies with more nobility than a lumberjack felling trees in Lewis County to build homes for all those returning veterans. Yes, there are valorous people, some truly worthy of our awe, who sacrifice themselves for others in ways that take our breath away. Let us reserve the word valor for them, and for them alone. I think we're about fixing to get into a pretty good gunfight. Today on Friendly Fire, Lone Survivor. There's a storm inside of us. I've heard many war movie podcasters speak of this. A burning. A river. A drive. It's true. An unrelenting desire to review more of these movies than anyone could think possible. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. And I am Medal of Honor winner John Roderick. <laughs> you shouldn't come to this show for medical advice, but if, you, if you've if you been experiencing a burning river inside you, I think you need to see a doctor. <laughs> if your burning river lasts for more than four hours. Right. <laughs> I don't know why they made us do all those uh, sit-ups in the surf in order to become the hosts of Friendly Fire. But, you know, it's the kind of perseverance that uh, that they train into you, that I suppose that that we need. Think about all the 
potential hosts that we considered that ended up ringing the bell three times. That's why Rob's the producer and and not one of the hosts. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't do it. That's right. Where is the Hell Week at Bud's movie? Because the first (laughs) five minutes of this film is that documentary footage of the training montage. Yeah. Riveting. Wait, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? I fucking loved it. Yeah, no. Why would I be kidding about this? Because there are probably seven Hell Week at Bud's full length features as well as like 14 documentaries, 14 television shows. If Friendly Fire hasn't hasn't watched and reviewed them, did they really oh, happen? I guess not. I guess not. We're definitely going to watch... Um, G.I. Jane was one of them. G.I. Jane, yeah. We're going to watch the shit out of G.I. Jane one of these days. We've got uh, over 200 movies on the, on the list. We'll get to them all eventually. I have lived through Bud's training so many times in my imagination... And Mm. every time my imagination has to wrestle with the fact that, A, I know I would not make it through Bud's, and B, I know that I would (laughs) never ring that bell. And so the only only solution to this problem is that I would die. Yeah. Right? Because I am never going to quit a thing. I would die rather than quit, but I would never make it through Bud's. (laughs) I would most certainly spite die. That's what would happen. You have to have like two levels of commitment to the thing. You have to have commitment to think that like you could make it through the training, but also so much respect for the training that even when you clearly can't, you like are continuing to participate in the in the mythology of it. Do you know anyone, Ben, in your liberal cuck life (laughs) who actually has that kind of like just Onriness, like stubborn, like there's a reason that the that a lot of people in special forces are like angry dudes. It's because they have it in their heart and soul to never be dominated. You know, it's like they're they're all they're all Scots Irish that come down out of the hills and they're like, I'll eat a rock before I submit to British domination or whatever. Do you know anyone like that personally? I will say this won't come as a surprise to you guys, but the closest I've ever gotten to anything even approaching this was when I went to scuba diving camp in my high school years. And uh, there was like a pretty high threshold that you needed to pass in terms of demonstrating your ability as a swimmer to like be, be allowed to participate in scuba training. And that involved like a a pretty long, pretty harrowing swim that was like right at the edge of my swimming ability. And then a underwater, like hold your breath swim. Like I feared it all year long in in anticipation of going to to summer camp. And it was was like one day where you just like, if you can get through this day, summer camp is going to be great. And it's, uh, I think, a tiny, tiny fraction of what, what these guys go through. But Ben, did you end up ringing the bell when they didn't have gluten-free granola bars back on the boat <laughs> after <laughs> that was when it went too far? I actually learned a lot about what I know about cooking at that summer camp because I took a I took a seafood cookery class in addition to getting uh, certified as a as a dive videographer. Where is the cooking class footage from Buds? <laughs> I'm talking about <laughs> this summer camp. Ben's like, you know, it was actually a tennis camp, but we also had stupid <laughs> diving and cooking. Seafood cooking classes specific. Yeah. Wow. Seafood cookery. 
It was um, after French but, class, but before interpretive dance. It's obviously a bit to like compare the two things, but the intensity of that of that underwater swim, that like that thing where you feel like you are dying and you know you have to keep going in order to get the thing that you want is fucking intense and like what i understand about this training is that they do that too like all day every day for the entire time to suppress the instinct to live to the the instinct to live above all other choices it's incredible one of the things i've always noted about buds is that the instructors are guys that have made it through buds put your helmet on the ground you're done and then for whatever reason because of this seal mentality, they decided the way they want to spend their lives is to go through buds over and over again. I mean, they might not be carrying the log, but they're standing knee deep in the surf screaming at dudes that are carrying a log. It's like, wow, you never retire, do you? Like you don't go you don't go onto the teams and then just sit around sharpening your knife in at Bagram Air Force Base. This is your life from now on you're eating rocks for the rest of your life wow i'm looking at the buds uh oh i guess it's the navy seal selection and training wikipedia entry and michael murphy is in the photo on this wikipedia entry michael murphy and and a couple of these guys were members of a seal delivery vehicle team and these are the guys that go in the little underwater four-man sub that that's bolted to the outside of a actual sub like in hunt for red october they run the they run the real sub up to as far as you can get and then they the seals get into this thing if they flood the compartment they back this little this little mini sub out and then they go up the whatever the mekong river or whatever and in reading about those those seal delivery vehicles it said that only 10 percent of seals qualify to go in those because they're so freaking claustrophobic that even seals are like no thanks i don't want to go <laughs> in this like windowless tube and that's the point where i i mean i'm it's not like i would ever make it through buds but the idea that my job would be in a scuba in a basically a, an oil tank flooded with water i just it's just like pff, kill me now Pin me under a rock underwater. <laughs> Where do I need to put my helmet? <laughs> <laughs> Just like, fuck you. It does not feel like a war is hell. It does not feel like a a criticism of any uh, of anything really. Like it's in, in some ways, it's got some some stuff in common with Black Hawk Down, which is that it's about some elite soldiers that failed in their mission, got in over their heads. Yeah. And yet feels like a celebration of their skills in spite of that. I don't want to get into a semantic argument with you, but I almost feel like it's that they were failed by stuff like their gear and and flying the Apaches away when they should have been ready to go in immediately. I don't feel like the soldiers failed here. They were in an awful situation and, and they couldn't get a fucking radio to work. The mission is a failure. So, <laughs> right. I just don't want you to get the emails, Ben. I, I want them. Send them to me. It's the only way I feel alive, you know? <laughs> I've actually wrapped a yellow ribbon around my email address, so <laughs> everyone should know not to send me email. 
I mean, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about the the things to send emails about, one thing that I think is worth talking about is how much of a fabrication the story here is, because the book that this movie is based on sets the number of insurgents that they were fighting at two hundred. Like basically, nobody agrees with that number, and some people are saying it, it it's like five guys that they were fighting. The official number was that there were eight to 10 Taliban and the immediate after action report written by the colonel that was on the ground searching the battlefield for the, the bodies of the dead seals was that there were no dead insurgents, an official report that they actually didn't kill a single Taliban. And even if you consider that they carried away their dead or whatever, there was you know, initial and, and kind of confirmed reports were that there were like eight Taliban, not 80 or 200. Pretty devastating. The forest does a really good job at obscuring the numbers. I don't feel like the film makes a super strong case about showing you what numbers it believes were there. Really? Well, just think about the number of kill shots you see in this movie. Hey, you get a lot of those kill and went through every kill shot every like headshot that we see they clearly kill 50 dudes at least either they kill 50 dudes or the taliban all keep ketchup packets in their hats <laughs> do you want to watch the movie where where there's zero people on the ridge line and they're shooting at nothing we got to make a movie here i think that's the that's what we're that's what we're talking about there's the movie and then there's what happened and from my experience watching the movie not knowing what happened i was like this is the warriest war movie i ever warred it's really unbelievable <laughs> it's harrowing it's gripping it's it's completely immersive in just really like personal involving violence where you see wounds that you hardly ever get to see where every main character's just got their face ripped open there's like so much just fighting. It's really thrilling. And then when you look into the story, like your hearts, at least my heart started to sink where it was like, oh no, oh shit. Like, please don't tell me that there are conflicting reports. Oh fuck. There's really conflicting reports. And then you boil it down. It's like, oh, this whole story is one guy's, it's Luttrell's account. There's no confirmation and the people that were there are telling us that this isn't what happened at all. Uh, the, the other people that aren't Luttrell. And that was like such a letdown, like a major, major, major bummer. I think the biggest bummer for me was reading that this happened early enough in Afghanistan that only five American servicemen had been killed, period, in Afghanistan before Operation Red Wings. So the the badness of the bad guy was extremely overstated. Yeah. He didn't know Osama bin Laden. He was not a major terrorist. He hadn't killed 20 dudes. And I wonder, like, why do they feel they have to do that? Like, that's in the book, too. And I think that you can tell this story without overstating who the target was, you know, without without undercutting it. The thing is, I, there are people listening to this show that are active duty. Let's hope Luttrell is not listening. I don't want him to kick our ass. <laughs> I don't think he is. But you have to call into question his 
extremely self-aggrandizing account. And so the movie makers are like, Hey, this book is amazing. And nobody had really, you know, this whole, this whole business about the fact that when they finally got Gulab here and through all the problems of getting a accurate translation, you know, Gulab is sitting in Afghanistan going like, Oh, my friend that I saved is, it has a book coming out. That's really exciting. And then he goes, you know, presumably like gets taken to the movie at some point. And he's like, this is an amazing movie. When's the movie about, uh, about Luttrell going to show. <laughs> How much did you say he made from the licensing of the, of the story? So I, I guess what it boils down to, to me is that this movie should have a, a title card that says like, I don't know if this movie were a fiction, if it were just presented as a fiction, it'd be like, I would be so psyched about this as a war movie. I thought the acting was great. The kinetic filmmaking was great. I mean, the jingoism even was great. I mean, it was just like the, the classic sort of war movie. It's just, I don't believe it. Like that, that conflict where they've got the, the three goat herds in zip ties and they're debating what to do is so interesting. And you have to imagine that like like a much higher percentage of the people you meet in the Navy SEALs are on Axe's side of the of the argument, right? Like we can't let the the lives of these three goat herders affect the overall mission. Like we have to kill them or tie them up and let them get eaten by wolves because this is a bad dude. We gotta go get him. And like the responsibility of the training is to like correct for that i imagine yeah well not not just correct for it i think part and parcel of being the kind of person that gets through buds right that has that kind of indomitable spirit it goes along with the kind of people that have like a super strong personal ethic and we have a tendency in our leftist ivory towers to kind of poo-poo all that duty and honor talk because it gets trotted out so often in a way that feels performative and, you know, aggrandizing. But in fact, it's real for those dudes. I could absolutely see five seals sitting on the side of a mountain saying, like, there's no way that we can kill these guys because it would be dishonorable. I mean, they have their own Pashtun Wally. The seals do, right? They're not all cowboys. When you read about, like, Eddie Gallagher and, like, what the people in his team thought of him, like, they're horrified by what, he was about it's also like hard not to think of eddie gallagher first when you think about axe right like or the the character of axe in this movie like the case that he's making right his was the character that i thought of first when you were talking about the the conflict of reality and presented film reality here like ben foster went to hang out with the axelson family and like, that's not a unique story having to do with this film. Like the actors were very invested in the characters that they were playing and in their stories. And yet, how does the Axelson family feel watching this film, seeing this version of him on screen going like, yeah, fucking kill the kids. That's what makes the semantics of like based on true acts of courage versus based on a true story versus you know, maybe not having a subtitle underneath a movie title, that stuff kind of matters. I mean, I, I think watching the movie, I did not recoil at Axe's like hard take. 
right? I didn't either, but when these characters are based on real people, you have to know. Well, but the thing was, the decision got made when when Michael Murphy was like, we're not going to kill them, we're going to set them free. And he looks at Axe, Axe is like, roger that. Like he doesn't even in his face show, he doesn't roll his eyes, he doesn't say, oh, you know, like, and he never says, I told you so. Like he was advancing that that position, but as soon as the decision was made, he was 100% like on board. And that I thought was a very impressive moment to convey in film that it seemed to me, you see a lot of war movies where there, there's the dissenter guy and he ends up being a real problem. Or an unbelievability to all of them seeing the trolley made of goats and, and all voting <laughs> in the same way. Like in a way that would feel saccharine and and bad. Right. That scene is also amazing because like the subtext is just that like a mission failure is so hard for them to to stomach. Like the op is blown, you know, like they can't really do the thing that they came to do at this point. It really takes like an emotional effort for them to get over that, you know, to almost mourn the mission failure. Yeah. And the mission failure is 100 percent a radio failure at that point, right? Because the whole mission was Mm -hmm. find the guy, identify that the guy's there and then camp there and basically guide us in, uh, you know, guide the Marines in as they come to actually take the guy out. This was not a sniper team. These guys were not meant to take him out. They were just there to spot and they did it. They found him. They set up their little squad, you know, their little, their little perimeter. If that radio had worked, the whole thing would have probably gone down before the goat herders even arrived. I'm really surprised that Motorola allowed <laughs> their their name to be on those radios. That seems like weird product placement. The Motorola was the was the sat phone, and then there was like a Raytheon oh, logo right. on the on the radio itself. Maybe. And at both of those were like. God, like it almost feels like product placement, except for the product is not working as advertised. <laughs> I know, kind of a diss. You knew it was a Raytheon product because it launched out of uh, Murph's hands uh, <laughs> with a with a rocket plume behind it, and then exploded into a city. <laughs> if I shave his head, I got to focus on his face. Ever since we saw Zero Dark Thirty, um, the first time I saw Zero Dark Thirty, you know that that movie obviously has a a lot of controversy around its depiction of torture and its depiction of how important it was primarily that the the historical argument for finding Osama bin Laden suggests that maybe that intel came from a guy walking in off the street at ISI and saying, um, right. hey, I, I know where Osama is. And that whole business of like, no, we tortured guys for a couple of years and then we spent a bunch of time driving around Islamabad with a with a cell phone you know, like all of that. And we gave a guy a Lamborghini. <laughs> Zero Dark Thirty was more about retroactively justifying the expense reports, I think. Yeah, right. But I loved Zero Dark Thirty as a movie. And one of the the things that has stuck with me the longest is the character of Maya and her like CIA intel person's con- total contempt for special forces not in terms of their ability as people to get stuff done, but just contempt for the culture. And at, at one point she says like, I didn't want to use you guys at all. I did. I think you're a bunch of tobacco chewing hicks 
You're going to, you know, your presence in this is just going to fuck this up. And the way that the special forces are depicted in Zero Dark Thirty, it was the first time that, although, you know, they're depicted very heroically, the first time I ever really saw explicitly the, like, culture of SEALs as a bunch of white dudes from the desert south or northern California, that really has colored my colored everything I've I've thought about seals from that point forward. And you see it again in this movie, the kind of one of the best parts of these guys up on that hillside is just the fact that they will not. It's not that they don't they'll never surrender to the Taliban. It's that they don't even surrender to their wounds. You know, they don't surrender yeah. to inevitability. They don't surrender to fate like they keep fighting even after they get shot in the brain. And that is a, that is like such a kind of profound archetype of a person. When we hear Schlitz malt liquor, we're heading back. I think this film does a really good job in, in forcing you to try to understand how it feels to be that hurt. Those are the parts of this film that I like the most. And I don't think that you're far off, John, with, with bringing up a Catherine Bigelow film in the same sentence as, as we talk about Lone Survivor. I think there are a lot of similarities to, to that film with this film. And I mean that as a compliment. I think Peter Berg's movies look a lot like Catherine Bigelow movies in the best way. What are Peter Berg's other movies? I read quite a bit about how everybody was so psyched that Peter Berg was going to do this movie because they felt like they could trust it in his hands. And then I looked at the list of Peter Berg movies. Well, he made Battleship the year before this. Yeah, right. I was like, Battleship, and he made like a Lexus commercial, like... They're not all hits, guys. I would say that Lone Survivor is part of like a trilogy that Peter Berg did in... Uh, 2013, he did Lone Survivor, and then in 2016, he did Deepwater Horizon and Patriots Day, all starring Mark Wahlberg. Oh. Yeah. So Mark Wahlberg is kind of his muse. They say hi to your mother trilogy. <laughs> I think one thing to wrap up the point I was trying to make was that, like, in so many war films, you get the shot to the chest, shot to the head flesh wound to the shoulder thing. But the quality to this film that really made me feel something physically, and I think this is a film that wants you to feel this viscerally, is that we're talking about like fingers and feet and a butt, you know, like like wounds that that on some instinctual level, you you know what that feels like for some reason. Like a human being knows what it's like how how much more painful it's got to be in some ways to be shot in the fingers right than than to take a a flesh wound to the shoulder and to keep fighting right right to just have one of those cuts on your face if yeah. you got one of those cuts on your face right now it would, it would be a day ruiner for me <laughs> everybody in your family would be freaking out racing you to the hospital you know, like, how we need stitches. Look, he's got a cut, like, all across his face. And these, all yeah. of them had 50 of those cuts. And it's, and that's not, it's just, you know, and then also their back is broken and, and there's a, a sword sticking out of their leg. I think there's a fine line between how this film does it and, like, sort of a, like, pornographically jingoistic blood and guts type of depiction of a war wound that this, that this film specifically does not depict. I think it's well done. One, two, yeah. 
let's assume that Luttrell coming back to the United States did not come from a personal culture where he felt like he needed to exaggerate what had happened. Assuming that we're going to go with the accounts that everyone else gave that there were not 200 Taliban, that he did not personally headshot 50 of them, you know, because there, there, there's video taken by the Taliban of this battle from their perspective. They had video cam, they had a video camera with them and the, their own self aggrandizing, uh, video of themselves being like fighting these seals. There's only seven of them in their own video. So if Luttrell had not done that, if he had actually told the story about how four seals fought eight Taliban and the eight Taliban had mortars or whatever, or they had, they had better gear maybe, or we're just, we're just like to give the Taliban the hat tip of saying like, these guys are really good fighters. They're great. You know, they live in the, the mountains of the Hindu Kush. You know, they had breakfast that morning, probably, but also like they they're just like an indomitable group of people that aren't going to that aren't going to roll over. Why wouldn't Luttrell write that book? But a better question is, like, would that be a better movie? This was not Lone Survivor based on the book Push by Sapphire, though. Like, <laughs> it doesn't say explicitly that it's based on that book, right? Hmm. I mean, it's got the same title as the book. It's certainly presented as a true story. I think that distinction is important. It was promoted as a true story during the promotion campaign. Luttrell went around with it and appeared on CNN. And I am especially forgiving of a person who is telling a story and it feels to him that it was a certain way. Like, I just don't, I don't get that this was a... And I haven't read the book. This is another thing. Like, I wish I had to to be able to have a stronger take about it. But I just don't get the sense that, like, you survive something like this and then write the book that makes you look like like you kick all kinds of ass because you were outnumbered 100 to 4. What do you need to do that for? You're already a hero. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing that I think is so confusing about this. And it's hard having read a few articles about it to feel like we're in a position to pass any specific judgment about it. But I think John's question still stands that like it, it seems that there is still an interesting story to be told if it was somewhat truer to what we think probably actually happened. Although, yeah, I mean, that movie's not going to get made by this team about this book, but I have a couple of anecdotes can you guys believe that? Mm. Knock me over with a feather. In 2015, uh, I went on a tour of Air Force bases in Africa as a guest of friend of our program. John, you're gonna you're gonna need Ben's permission to tell an Africa story as the one source for Africa stories <laughs> on all podcasts. Adam, you've been to Africa too. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> We've all been to Africa. John and I have done cool things in Africa right. and you bought a carpet. Right. <laughs> I had it shipped to your house. Robs, I want to keep this Africa banter in. <laughs> well, anyway, you guys, 
it's true that Ben and I have had cool times in Africa and Adam bought a carpet. <laughs> but when I was there- To be with, clear, I didn't buy a carpet. My wife did. When I went to uh, Africa as a guest of a friend of the show, Lieutenant Colonel Matt Martin, at one point at the, um, at the joint base in Djibouti, uh, we were being given a tour of the flight line and we were taken out and shown, you know, people were walking us around. They showed us some of the C-130s that they had there that were, um, you know, that had been kind of part of the whole, because Djibouti was like, a, you know, a, a big base that was right off of the horn or on the Horn of Africa and right off of Arabia and a lot of the stuff that happened in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, that that Djibouti was the rear area. Anyway, they're, they're giving us a tour and we go out and look at these helicopters that were um, pave hawks. And the crew of one of them said, did you guys see Lone Survivor? And I was there with David Reese and Jonathan Colton, and none of the three of us had seen it. And we were like, no. And he was like, oh, dude, this was the helicopter that rescued Luttrell. And we didn't know what we didn't know what he was talking about. And we were like, oh, cool, cool. And he was like, no, you guys have got to see Lone Survivor. Like, we're the wow. we're the crew. This is the, you know, this our squadron and this very helicopter were part of that. Um, no way. Part of that operation. And we just sort of shrugged it off like, oh, well, good for you. I mean, I'm glad. I bet that was really something. And they were like, yeah, man, it was. It was amazing. You know, and they were like really, really, really. That was That was their claim to fame. And they were really... Um, proud of it. So when we got back to the States, I, uh, we all forgot to watch Lone Survivor. I don't, none of us had. <laughs> but when I was King Neptune a couple of years later here in Seattle for the Seafair celebration, I was, you know, often kind of the guest of uh, various Navy people at one point um, and, and met a lot of my, you know, my now great friends, the various admirals and admirals retired Admiral Nora Tyson retired, a cl- close personal friend. But one of the things that happened was we were given a tour, I and my daughter, given a tour of the USS Michael Murphy. And I spent an entire afternoon on board the Michael Murphy with the captain of the boat, walking me around, took us to the bridge, took us, showed us all the weaponry, took us to his personal cabin where we sat in the captain's quarters and, you know, and sat and talked about the ship and whatnot. And then he took us to a shrine on the boat to Michael Murphy, where his uniform and his medal of honor and his like ephemera from his life, like memorabilia of his personal, like his high school diploma and his, the boots he was wearing when he died. I mean, it was like a museum to Michael Murphy. And again, I didn't know who we were talking about. I had not made the connection to the fact that I had, that I'd been in the helicopter that had rescued Luttrell. I did not, did not connect the two at all. And again, I was like, Oh, so it, so the ship was named after a Navy seal and the captain was so proud. Everyone on the boat was so proud that their boat was named the Michael Murphy and that that he was their, you know, like he was their namesake and they 
they kind of they you know walked past this like memorial to him every day and like you know and, like touched the feet of the statue until the bronze was worn down you know and he gave the captain gave me a hat of the USS Michael Murphy which I wear all the time when I'm in the garden Wow. And I didn't know any of this until I started watching the movie. <laughs> and then I looked at, I, I was watching and I was like, Michael Murphy. And I paused the paused and I went up to my hat, which you I reached up to your head. <laughs> the USS Michael Murphy mug slipped out of your hand and fell in slow motion to the ground. Shattered. I was wearing it that morning. And I was wow. like, holy shit. Michael Murphy is all around me. But the but the I think the point of my extremely long and self-aggrandizing anecdote is that the people I met that had connections to this event and that had connections to Michael Murphy that were active duty in the Navy and in the Air Force, this was the this guy and this mission were high points of their not just their like service, but like their sense of their service. And he in and the and the Medal of Honor paperwork or like the, de- the description of what Michael Murphy did to earn the Medal of Honor, all we know about it is what we got from Luttrell. So Luttrell's story reverberates throughout. I mean, and, and Michael Murphy was the first medal of the first posthumous Medal of Honor awarded since Vietnam at the time. I mean, this is early on in the Afghanistan, Iraq war cycle. This Medal of Honor had tremendous significance to the entire military, and it's based on the account of Luttrell, who ends up telling this, you know, writing this book that's like, there were 200 Taliban and I was shooting with both. It seems like his his uh, testimony, testimony is the wrong word, but like his after action report disagrees with his book too so like the and the things he says later disagree with his book what the medal of honor citation says is between 30 and 40 enemy fighters which is you know a lot more reasonable but like gulab the guy that rescued him who is a big part of this story i mean gulab's account is that when he saved luttrell luttrell still had all 11 magazines on his person and un unemptied. Wow, that's almost that's almost a year's worth of issues. Right? Which I mean, magazine was it? But uh how hard to hear Gulab come forward and say, not come forward like to debunk him, but in the process of this movie coming out, they were like, "Let's get Gulab over here. We want to hear his story." And Gulab can't read or write comes to the United States and he's like, I will tell my story. I, I rescued this guy. He still had all his bullets on him. <laughs> the the Taliban knew where they were the whole time. You know, it's just like, it hurts my heart. America, Texas. The firefight between the village and the Taliban also apparently a, a bit of cinematic license. That didn't really, that's not really how it went down. Because they're, I mean, in the movie, their town gets fucking destroyed. Like they defend this guy at the expense of their entire village. I read this terrible account of Gulab's life and a lot of it feels self-inflicted like in the immediate aftermath he got lost in the shuffle but when he, when Latrell finally found him Latrell made several attempts to bring him to America, set him up, buy him a ranch, give him a bunch of money 
And Gulab refused multiple times because I don't think he fully understood what was being offered. And there's just a lot of, I think, confusion in the man's life. And part of it was at first he felt like he shouldn't be rewarded because Pashtun Wali obligated him to help a stranger. And then as time went on, it was like, well, I don't want to come to America because I'm, you know, I believe in Afghanistan. And then later on, he was like, I don't believe in Afghanistan anymore. The Taliban keeps blowing up my house. And by the time he did decide fully to come to America, he'd burned a lot of bridges, Gulab had, and like came out with this account that basically contradicted everything Luttrell said. So Luttrell, after several years of trying to help the guy, Latrell was like, I don't want to help you anymore. I don't want to promote your story. Like, you're, you're, you're calling me a liar. Ooh. And so now Gulab and his family are living in, you know, some Section 8 housing in Fort Worth, Texas. And Gulab doesn't speak English or read or write. No, no one in his family does except his oldest son, who's trying to support the family with a job at Fuck. electronics warehouse or something. I don't know what makes me sadder is like, you know, that you get that scene at the end of the film where Luttrell is like, he's coming with me. And the, and the guy dragging him to the chopper is like, no, he's not. And then you expect the story to be like, well, Gulab, like so many other people who helped, is going to be murdered. Uh, as soon as these helicopters lift off. Right. There's going to be a reprisal. I went through many stages of of grief during your story, John, because I was like, oh, cool. Well, he's he's safe. He's here. And then it's just Gulab being put in the ball kicking machine for the last decade. It It sucks. Well, and it's really hard because, you know, when you think about when you want to talk about an immigrant experience or certainly someone that's helped the U.S. military in Vietnam or Iraq or, you know, so many different theaters of war where at the end of the war, the U.S. pulls out and there's, you know, there's always some guy that was like, wait a minute, I worked as a translator for you guys for eight years and now everyone in my own country wants me dead. There's never enough room on the chopper. Right, exactly. And it's like, oh, thanks for your service. You know, well, here's like five bucks. So the idea that they did get him out is amazing. And yeah. they and they resettled him. But, you know, from the perspective of the Americans trying to help him, they were like, we tried to get you out for eight years and you said no. And now you want out and we, we're going we're gonna to pull it off. But like the, the window where you could get out and be a hero is kind of closed now. And the, the sad part is that without that hero narrative, from the standpoint of the United States, you're just another Afghani who is, you know, basically on food stamps now. And this article I read said, like, Gulab's favorite thing to do is to go to the supermarket and walk up and down the aisles and just look at all the canned fruit. It is pretty amazing. I mean, don't get me wrong. I like to go look at the canned fruit, too. This is the part of our conversation that has now pulled me over to the side of the discomfort about the relative truthiness of Luttrell's story versus what the movie says and how unnecessary it is to to couple the movie to that story as strongly as it is. This is an amazing story and a movie as as a movie is is rad. Just change the names, change a couple of details and it's a very good action movie. Like it's one of those movies that like it feels kind of small in scale and yet it's like 
incredibly compelling to watch. I mean, like, I think that Peter Berg put like a million of his own dollars into the production budget of this movie. Yeah. And like, very unusual. Like, directors don't usually contribute their own funds to the production of films. He also worked for scale. Didn't yeah. Wahlberg also put money in? A lot of the above the line people had had their own money in this thing. And and it means something really significant in terms of like how much they believed in the project. And I don't know if that belief is an entirely financial one. I guess you like if you put up a million bucks for something, you want to get it back eventually. So you have to believe in the marketability of it to some extent. Like they didn't do this for charity, but also I think believing in the, you know, in the significance of the story that they were telling. And, and believing in the script, right? I mean, that's right. You read the script and you're like, I can play this role. This is going to be kick ass. But there, but there are, you know, there are a lot of stories that come out of wars where later on you're forced to kind of, appraise the veracity of the story and it's not just the fog of war it's i mean bad things happen right i mean you don't born on the fourth of july tells the story of a guy that's like i shot my friend accidentally and everybody in the we haven't watched that movie yet but you know all of his commanding officers are like no you didn't just like no you didn't i'd be very curious to hear reactions to this film by people that were like closer to the real events. What do you make of a retelling that retells in this particular way? Michael Murphy's dad claimed that the book and the movie dishonored his son's memory. Wow. So the, the Marine Colonel who dropped in on the scene to do the search and recovery, like immediately after the battle is the one that says there's, there were no, no enemy casualties. Um, his quote was, I've been to that location I've multiple times. He says, I've been in enough firefights to know that when the shit hits the fan, it's hard to know how many people are shooting at you. But there weren't 35 enemy fighters in all of the Korangal Valley that day. That's a Marine colonel, you know, like that's bold of that guy to go on record, to step forward and put himself at odds with the military narrative. You know, this isn't like a reporter for the Washington post. This is the guy that, and we've seen this in a lot of movies where there's all this internal pressure, like within the military to just keep your mouth shut. It's not uncommon. The one thing that we do know is that an entire chopper full of seals got shut down and, and got died. Yeah. That is an amazing moment in this movie because the film really takes you through the emotion of the day is saved, the cavalry is here, to we're totally fucked, nothing is going to work forever. Like, that really hits hard. The depiction of that crash is one of the best I've ever seen in a movie. Also, the way that it's cut in half and the way that it falls and explodes, it's so scary. Yeah. It's so scary to cut from inside the chopper and see the rocket coming in and to and to see it go straight through the back door the way it does. It's so awful. Yuck. Yeah. This is not a film that that leans very hard into character development, but I mean those are familiar people on that Chinook that go down with it. 
I mean, I think that you make a mistake getting on board a helicopter with the guy that is super eager for the fray. He's the, he's the Blackburn of the movie. There is a strange self-awareness that this film has about the Shane character in that way, right? Yeah. Like foreshadowing his death in showing his excitement for the mission is a way that films like this often depict a character of that kind. He just seems doomed, like from the second he asks if he can go on the mission, right? Yeah, it sure feels that way. It feels that way, but when he is killed, I don't I don't feel the additive manipulation of the scenes were given with him before. Like right. I grieve his death because because I like him, not because the film used film math in order to make me feel a certain way by the time we got there, you know? Yeah, I think it's just that he's like, he and Eric Bana are the two characters that we really know anything about on that yeah. on that helicopter. And what we know about them is primarily that they're really worried about their teammates and they want to go rescue them. A uh, internet pedant noticed something wrong with those helicopters, though. Uh-oh. They noticed the Chinook helicopters in the actual events were special operations variants known as MH-47s. These models have many visual differences from regular Army Chinooks, including their overall dark aviation green color, refueling probe, and radar. They were also flown only by the elite 160th SOAR. The Chinooks in this film, however, are regular Army CH-47s without the above-mentioned features and are painted light green and also have 1st Cavalry Division insignia painted on the nose, which wouldn't have been on the 160th SOAR helicopters. That's really infuriating. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. I worked briefly in a factory that made these helicopters in Philadelphia. And one of the big takeaways about being on that production line, I want to be clear, I didn't build them. I was shooting video there. (laughs) But one of the big takeaways about these helicopters is, is how small they are. Like this is depicted in movies as a big, big Big rotor craft. The Chinook? And uh, that, was not, that was not the feeling that I got when I was right next to one. Really? And these were MH models that they often made on the production line along with everything else. Wow. A good buddy of mine from high school uh, flew them quite a bit and then flew Blackhawks. You can put 15 guys in it, right? Is that is that the capacity? Yeah. Those that are close to this particular uh, helicopter call them hooks. You're a hook driver if you are a pilot of a Chinook. And that's what he called himself. I mean, you can you can put 15 guys in a 1973 Dodge Dart if you've got enough motivation. Yeah. If you've eaten enough mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> kind of wild. So I guess my point is like this is not a, a giant Russian hind helicopter size helicopter. Yeah. What would you compare it to? Like a panel van or? No, it's it's definitely bigger than a van. And it's like the size of a of a bus, but it's not the size of a city bus. Huh. I've been in a C one thirty when it was when I was on a tour, and it seems really small. But I've also flown in a C one thirty with a bunch of with you know every seat filled, and uh, a C one thirty with every seat filled is full of things. Yeah. Like. You, it's just astonishing how much will fit in one of those planes. 
You know, that's probably the difference, right? Like I was in a in a production environment where there were 10 of these on a line. I think the effect is that these craft maybe aren't as big as you would assume, but if you were to be out in one flying one, I think you get a greater sense for its its true size. Yeah. There are a lot of places that seem small until you get in them. Yeah. And especially you get in them and have to stay there for a while. It's like, well, I'll put the closet over here, move things around. <laughs> Maybe if the kitchen had an island. It's amazing. This is a over 60 year design that's still flying. This is a lot like the B-52, you know, it's just going to keep going forever. They're going to keep doing block updates to it and uh, fly it for another 50 years. It's incredible. I mean, the scene at the end where the uh, the cavalry does, in fact, show up is pretty amazing. Like when the Apaches swoop in and the gunship is up in there, just like yeah. shredding the hillside. You know, Adam and I always thrill to see Puff the Magic Dragon arrive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's often my favorite part of war film. You never cut to the inside of that plane to see the revelry that has got to be going on in there. <laughs> it's nice to be in an airplane and also have a cannon. Yeah. You know, it's not that's not just like a big machine gun. They're firing a freaking cannon out the side of that plane. I wonder to what extent you feel the cannon shot as you're flying. Like, is it like uh, hitting a speed bump in a car? Like, do you... Do you feel the the recoil on oh, the you aircraft? Must. You must. You have to. Yeah, that's wild. You know when the when the Blue Angels come, they have their C one thirty. That's like their support vehicle and their command vehicle, which they call. You're talking about Fat Albert with the with the ramjets. That plane is specially reinforced, and you know my house used to be right in the flight pattern for Boeing Field. And I would watch that plane do, you know, multiple, multiple bits of of flying in the course of seafare every year. And it can do incredible things. Most planes can do incredible things when they have rockets strapped to them. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's been, one does. it's been reinforced for, for short takeoff and landing, for like aerobatics. And it's such a cool plane. And I have to imagine those Puff the Magic Dragons also are you know like pretty battle hardened but still if you're firing a cannon sure you're gonna feel that in your bones your teeth are gonna rattle it's orthogonal to the path of flight so it's gotta just be it's gotta knock you on your butt yeah i really do agree though that when the cavalry comes in and at the end of a movie like that where it's like okay finally the the cobras have arrived or whatever and they're gonna lay down some not just suppressive fire but like when that voice says you're cleared to engage and they're just like, I don't understand what it is about me that that is where I tear up. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm all, I, I, I don't know whether it's the soundtrack that swells at that moment or whether it's the American flag that I have in my TV watching room with a, with a fan blowing on it. <laughs> Whatever it is. I've, you're filled with a patriotic fervor. I lose it. No, I think that's like, an extremely effective element of this movie. And there's a lot that is super effective of it. I mean, I, I think we've pretty relentlessly criticized it over the course of this episode. But I want to say, like, I 
I think that like as a movie, this movie kicks a lot of ass. It really does. How much ass does it kick though? Uh, it's not going to be a scale of one to five asses because, of course, the rating system needs to come from the film that we've been talking about. I think there there are two scenes in this film that are as brutal as any other, and no one fires a shot during them. Those are the two cliff falls. Our troops are pushed to the edge of two cliffs, and... There's only one way to go, and that's down. And so they do a couple of yard sales down the cliff. And these are sequences that uh, that are shocking to a viewer for their brutality, but also if you are interested in film production, are kind of miracles of their own. I read a little bit about how these scenes were done, and they just burned up stuntmen on them. Uh, they were instructed not to look down during the rolls and uh, looking down is how you survive a fall like this. So you're, you're telling professionals to act against their, their own life-saving instinct for the sake of making the stunt look real. And I found them uh, terrifying both times. And you get that moment of the tension of the fall and then the fucked up version of of relief and release at the end because we've survived the fall, but it's just pain. It's so much pain at the end. It's gasping and taking an account of what's broken on you and what you've lost as a soldier. And this is a film I think that has a terrific grasp of how to transmit that feeling. So on a scale of one to five cliffs, we will storm in like the cavalry and rate lone survivor the, the war films that i like the best are the ones that have such a great control over that tension and release because that's like ultimately the feeling that i want to have after a film is is like exhilaration for having seen something incredible and i think that's like that's the math of these types of movies like it's tension it's release over and over again into exhilaration and i definitely felt that so many times in this movie we talked a lot about how truthful the Luttrell story is as source material for the film and i am hyper focused on on reviewing this film as a film i think it's unfortunate how non-specific this film is about what is real and what isn't but what is real in this film is how you feel I was totally locked into it throughout. The parts of the film that I maybe liked least were, it felt like every time the film took a breath to talk about its own circumstances or or the politics of things or the hopelessness of a mission or whatever, like boom goes the building, you know, boom goes the rock behind someone asking such a question, like we're right back into a firefight. And that repeated exhaustion is is the motor of this thing and i think if the film's point was to make you feel what these guys felt the exhaustion and the pain and the fear of it i can't think of many other films that do it as well it is so much of that column a 
that feeling at the expense of column B, which is like any other character development or any other brand of tension, that if you believe column A is enough to make a good war film, and I do, then this is going to be a movie that you really love. I think by the end, you're just so tired and and wrung out, at least I was, that that by the time you get that realization, you know, 19 people died during this mission. And, and the one guy that you see that survived is technically alive, like medically alive, but, <laughs> but in a few other ways. Uh, I just found the movie incredible and, and rewatchable. This is not the first time I've seen this movie. Uh, so I knew what I was going to get this time. Uh, it did not disappoint the second time. I think a lot of middling war films, I would say, you know, you could watch once and forget it. But I think there's, I think if what you want to do is get the in the simulator, like the Navy SEAL simulator, this is it. And I think for that reason, I'm going to give it a four and a half cliffs. It's an amazing movie. I think that it really makes the case for what a competent storyteller Peter Berg is. I think um, it's really beautiful. I have never been to Afghanistan, but the way it is depicted in film is not often super different from the way Iraq is depicted or North Africa is depicted. It's just kind of like dusty, deserty place. With like the bullshit sepia filter or whatever. Right. And I think that this movie, like, I mean, it's shot in like New Mexico or something, but it does uh, posit an Afghanistan that is beautiful. And I can only imagine that there must be parts of Afghanistan that look like this or they wouldn't have made the movie like this. And... I, th- I think that, uh, I don't know, that's just such a surprising choice given everything about the movie. Um, I think it is worth seeing. And I think that my like threshold on this show often is that I'll say like four things is my like Ben Harrison stamp of approval. Go see this movie uh, in the world where this isn't signposted as based on a true story, where it is not uh, attempting to retell a real thing that happened it is that but i have to knock it a cliff because of the uh the choices it makes about how it um engaged with the the subject matter i I feel weird about it i feel weird that like latrell is in this movie he's he's an extra in several scenes as a as one of the seals in like the chinook i think and a couple other other places and that telling your own story of heroism and and fibbing about some of the details thing just leaves a weird feeling uh, surrounding this movie to me. So I think uh, I think I'm going to give it three cliffs. I uh, I also am torn and torn by torn between the two torn between two lovers and feeling like a fool <laughs> uh, because I think the. Uh, the movie is high adventure and a great depiction of war fighting. Uh, I think from the very start of this episode, you can, you can feel like my hurt feelings and disappointment that it turned out to be so profoundly questioned um, that no, basically that no one can confirm Luttrell's story. And there are quite a few stories pitted 
against it by reliable sources. It just hurts my feelings because I liked the movie. If the movie was garbage, I mean, that Ben Affleck movie made me question whether Pearl Harbor happened. I hated that movie so much. <laughs> but this movie, I want to like it. And I do I do agree with Adam that from the standpoint of it being a movie, like throw some popcorn in the thing and go downstairs and watch a movie where some dudes get shot up. It's a movie that's absolutely worth watching. And if this was a John Wayne movie where, where it was just like, here's a movie set in Afghanistan. I mean, this would be, this would be way up there in the points, but like Ben says, it's got to get dinged. Latrell dies in this movie because he's on the helicopter that gets shot down. Like Latrell is really playing summer camp here. We're making a movie. Mark Wahlberg is playing me, but I'm going to be there too. It just doesn't feel right. It feels too fun considering that we watch real seals die. So I'm coming in between you guys. I'm going to say three and a half cliffs and I don't know what else to say because this has been a long episode and I've talked a lot. I've said a lot of stupid shit already. Hey, there's been a lot of uh, dead air too, John. Don't sell yourself short. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of dead air too. Yeah, and leave all the dead air in, Rob, so that the, like by the time we get to this part, it makes sense that we're talking about it. <laughs> I hope Rob makes this into a 40-minute episode. <laughs> uh, Adam, did you have a guy in the film? Yeah, I mean, I really wanted my guy to be Shane, but it's not going to be Shane. I'm going to go a little bit outside of of the guy rules here and not make it a character but an actor i think my guy's going to be mark Wahlberg. Hmm. and i mean he was one of the actors who threw in his own money he was one of those actors that went through the training he has much to your consternation have been one of my favorite actors for a long time that is concerning his career is bizarre and interesting to me uh, I would say the back half of his career far less interesting than the early part. But when I look at this- You mean his underwear ads? Is that is that where you got on board? Yeah, that was exactly where. Yeah, first stop for me. But that brings up an interesting point, John. Like underwear model Mark Wahlberg has turned himself into over the course of his career- a face on a movie poster that is almost unrecognizable. He's throwing come and see face by the end of this movie in a way that uh, that does not preserve any vanity on his part. He is uglied and weakened and crying at the end of this movie in a way that I appreciated the entire way. He, Mark Wahlberg carries this movie in a movie filled with very strong performances. I mean, you're never going to put him in a movie where he doesn't make the crazy Mark Wahlberg face and and start spazzing out with a grenade in his hand. But I love that scene too. I like his choices in this movie, and I think they're choices that were responsible for making me feel as deeply as I did the kind of pain that I felt uh, in many of the scenes. I think I think his abilities here are are as as strong as as we're likely to get in a war film. So I want to recognize that. 
Mark Wahlberg's my guy. Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing that I read was that Luttrell was like personally involved with designing the training that Wahlberg and the other actors did to like act correctly like SEALs. Mm -hmm. And I think that is to all of their credit because, right. I mean, I haven't spent a ton of time around SEALs, but like the, the there's like something very subtle about just like the way they hold the objects that they interact with even that feels like it's different and considered, but also like second nature at this point. There was a different kind of sacrifice that Emil Hirsch made. Did you read about this? That that he wanted into this movie so badly and he did all the training on his own before being cast and he actually like turned down roles Whoa. on the prospect of getting this one. Like he was not, he was intentionally not answering his phone so that he would have more time to work out and train in order to to be Danny Dietz in this movie. Wow. Yeah, I don't think of uh, I don't think of him as action movie war movie guy necessarily, but I thought he was great in that role. My guy, of course, is the duck. Uh, very few moments of levity in this film. But uh, that was certainly one. And uh, boy, what a well cast duck! That just was such a <laughs> such a weird specific duck. I loved it. Who's your guy, John? My guy has to be the uncomprehending old man that is given a note from Mark Wahlberg and asked to spend all night and the next day running over the mountains to take it to an army base. <laughs> Imagining him showing up at some, you know, U.S. forward operating base. Oh, man. I wanted that scene. This note. <laughs> That's like, I'm Mark Wahlberg, help. And the, you know, the guy can't read the note, at least as far as we saw in the movie, he doesn't even know what's happening. He just, you know, Gulab is like, take this note to the army base. When I read the account, when I read Gulab's account, Mark Wahlberg, you know, said, take this to, he named the base and, and pointed at it on a map. And Gulab told the guy, take it to this other base. Cause I know a guy there. <laughs> so the guy actually went to a completely different base and then the that commander had to get on the horn and make it all happen. But I was just imagining him over the course of that night, you know, pulling up under a bush, eating a, a little bit of hardtack and then carrying on with this mission and the way he must have gotten treated when he arrived, you know, hands up at the base like I have a note. I have a special note for you. I really admired him. I admired that whole vibe. Good guys, dudes. Um, good guys and good vibes. Good conversation. I think that this was, uh, you know, like a, a pretty complicated one. And I, I feel like I learned a lot and I feel like I understand the movie a little bit better uh, having talked it over with you guys. And I wonder if that will be true of the movie we pick for next week's episode. One, two, yeah. Only the 120-sided die can tell us what that movie is going to be, and John's got it. Here it is. John has not thrown that die off of a cliff. <laughs> I'm not going to nominate this die for a Medal of Honor, but I will say that I appreciate its sacrifice. Here we go, into the die cup. Sixty-four. When I'm sixty-four, 
Will you still need me? 64 is a World War II film set in a Polish ghetto. This film was made in 1999 by director Peter Kasowitz and starring Robin Williams. It is Jacob the Liar. Oh, I have never seen this movie. I always confuse this one with Life is Beautiful as a as a type of movie, right? They came, came off right at the same time, pretty much, right? Yeah, they were kind of the... Um, the two volcano movies of their of their day. But Robin Williams never won an Oscar for his role uh, in Jacob the Liar, right? Well, they couldn't risk him walking across the top of all those seats, uh-huh, you know. Uh-huh. They couldn't take it a second time. Right. This is the uh this is the era of hilarious Holocaust comedies. <laughs> yes. Yeah, precisely that. And uh, that will be the film we cover next week on Friendly Fire. If you go to a video store, there's an entire section dedicated to them, John. They're <laughs> Hillolocaust movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Robin Williams made a comedy about uh, Vietnam. Let's see if he can make one about yeah. Jews in a ghetto in World War II. Uh, so that'll be next week. In the meantime, we're going to leave it with Rob's, 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 Rob's. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. If you'd like to check out more Friendly Fire or re-listen to a classic episode, check out our review on Forrest Gump which aired last year around this time. It's in my top five of Friendly Fire episodes, if that tells you anything. You can also gain access to our bonus pork chop episodes by heading to MaximumFun.org join. For as little as $5 a month, not only will you receive those episodes, you'll also gain access to the entire Maximum Fun bonus content catalog. Don't forget... You can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.